what happens is when you don't get enough sleep, there is, you'll, you'll actually get deep sleep and REM sleep more robustly and sooner. But it's actually because the ex- expression of a buildup of pressure for those, it means you're not getting enough, right? What you really want is to have sort of regular, you know, the, the, the really most important part about circadian timing is a regular period for you. Now, your period could be, could be later where you wake up late and go to bed late, but you want to try to maintain that pattern. Your body will work best if you are, if it's consistent in that, you know, that you're going to bed at three and you're waking up at, you know, let's say 10 or 11. If that's, if that's your pattern, great. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. This is James Schmachtenberger, CEO and co-founder of Qualia. I appreciate your support of our podcast, Collective Insights, and I encourage you to try the formula that launched our company, Qualia Mind. Qualia Mind promotes life-changing enhancements to your focus, energy, and overall mental wellness. This podcast interviews world-renowned experts on crucial aspects of mental wellness, such as sleep, exercise, and mindset training. But if you also want to add the life-changing brain nourishment to your diet, try Qualia Mind at neurohacker.com. You can use code James for an extra 15% off. That's Qualia Mind with code James at neurohacker.com, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Neurohacker Collective podcast. This is part two in our series with Dan Party on sleep optimization. And so I'm not even going to introduce Dan or do a catch up because this session is really just a continuation of the last session. If you haven't seen the last session, part one on foundations of sleep, uh, we'll have a link below. Go watch it first because we're not even going to recap. We're just going to dive in deeper. Sleep is such a deep and critical and rich topic that we wanted to continue beyond what we could fit into one reasonable podcast. And so we're going to just dive on into kind of where we left off at the end of that last session. So Dan, thank you for being back with us so we can go further. Good to be back. Good to be back. All right, my friend. So I know you have a talk coming up soon on hunter-gatherer sleep. And we kind of touched on the topic of uh, circadian rhythms last time and some of the dynamics that are involved in regulating circadian rhythms. But let's go deeper into circadian rhythm from an evolutionary point of view circadian rhythm are daily rhythms and hormones and other things that affect waking sleeping cycles yeah um so talk to us about hunter-gatherer sleep so this is part of a broader topic of ancestral health i think that the way that we try to understand what we need to do to be healthy today uh is good to go back and think about what were the forces that shaped our genes over millennia that um, are perhaps not attended to, or they, of course their environment is different, our lifestyles are different. And so understanding what things were like is a great starting place. It doesn't necessarily provide direct answers the way that if these hunter, if hunter-gatherers did something this way, then we need to do it this, that exact same way in order to be healthy today. But it is a really good starting place. So what I like to do is first understand what, whatever that subject is, how do they eat, what was their movement like, what was their sleep like, and then think, what does the current science tell us in these subjects? Mash those up and then think about, you know, there's the, there's the art of health sciences. You bring it all together to try to make good decisions based off of the, the tea leaves you have available to you. So what is hunter-gatherer sleep like? Well, it hasn't been well characterized. 
uh, up until recently, but there has been some investigations, uh, one which was led by Jerry Siegel, who I interviewed a while ago, that looked at three different hunter-gatherer societies, the San, the Chimani, and the Hadza. These are modern-day hunter-gatherers that live like our uh, you know, ancient ancestors did as well. So they are not influenced by the forces of, of modernity. How do they sleep? Well, the thought leading into this research, at least one hypothesis had been that these communities sleep longer. They go to bed when the sun goes down and they wake up when the sun goes up. And what this work found is that the, the characteristics of these three disparate communities were actually all quite similar. In fact, they didn't sleep more than what estimates are of modern hunter-gatherers, but rather they slept a little less. And, or I would say they slept on the lower end of what is considered the normal range. What was that timing? Well, about 5.7 to six and a half hours per night. Sounds pretty low. I mean, don't we hear we should be getting seven to nine hours of sleep per night? That's according to the National Sleep Foundation. A really important distinction here is how people report their sleep and how sleep studies analyze sleep. So if I were to ask you, Daniel, you know, like, how did, what was your sleep last night? People might say, well, I went to bed at midnight and I woke up at eight and therefore I slept eight hours. You do not say, I went to bed at midnight, I woke up at eight, I had you know, 85% sleep efficiency and therefore I slept six hours and 42 minutes and I, was, I had this amount of wake time after sleep onset. That's what a sleep study will report to you. So when you hear the term, when you hear the statistics that these communities averaged 5.7 to six and a half hours per sleep per night, then that doesn't mean that you want to spend that amount of time in bed. That's all, that's all the time you need in bed. In fact, if you looked at their sleep period, so that's different than sleep time. Sleep period is what you report. Well, that is the amount of time they spent in bed to get the sleep that they got. Their sleep period was seven to eight and a half hours, which falls right in line with, with, with what the National Sleep Foundation and their estimate or their analysis of the literature on science and how much sleep that we need tells you. So actually they are less off than you think. Other things, did they, do they nap? Um, what, have, what, is their, what do they sleep on? Well, they sleep on these, uh, these platforms that they make. They have temperature fluctuations that are across the night, of course, so the temperature drops. Um, all of these communities, the average temperature was somewhere between you know, 55 to 90 across a 24-hour period of the day, across the seasons. And so a, a couple times a year, then the temperature is getting down to about 55 degrees at the lowest point. If you think about modern sleeping environments, they tend to be oftentimes too hot. Um, that can disrupt sleep. But they also don't change over the night. Now, we don't know if changing environmental temperature is in any way important for optimizing the depth of sleep that you get, but it's a hypothesis that's worth exploring. And we talked about it in that interview. And actually with modern smart homes, you might actually be able to work with your Nest device or you know, other sort of electronic devices to actually emulate a environmental condition such as this. So that you go to bed and the temperature is, let's say 67. And as uh, over the course of the night, it drops four to five degrees and then it rises up a little bit again. So that is interesting to observe that in those populations. And it's also interesting to think about what we might be able to do about it now. So you actually might still be, you might be able to emulate environmental conditions that mimic what was happening on the Pleistocene, even if you're in Minnesota and it's negative 20 degrees outside. So the fact that we have temperature control could be, is not always a good thing, but it can actually be a good thing when we take the knowledge that we have, what we think is useful, and then we can basically sort of emulate what those conditions are. 
Light is a good example of that. Smart homes and offices in the future will also try to emulate what natural light is like. So we get blue enriched white light during the day, much more like sunlight, even though it's not, not as intense. And then also as the day goes on and outside the tone and intensity of light is changing, then your environment will do the same to then help you produce the hormones that help you initiate sleep and keep the timing of your sleep consistent day to day. A lot of this stuff doesn't happen now unless you have the knowledge and you're working to implement that into your life. This is what I do. So you, uh, whether you put on glasses or you use certain types of filters on your electronic devices so they emit less blue light. The point being here is that it's, it's an exciting time and technologies perhaps could save us from ourselves because <laughs> it's interfered a lot. Um, what else? To go back to the hunter-gatherer sleep. They... Now, when you go into the, those sorts of environments, it's difficult to bring an entire sleep lab. So what you lose in resolution, you gain in observing really more naturalistic behaviors. Um, did they nap? Well, these hunter-gatherers were instrumented with actographs, which are things that monitor light and also physical activity. The algorithms are pretty well-defined if you're trying to sleep and you can then look at how much movement a person is undergoing to then predict sleep stages. It's not detecting those sleep stages directly by using EEG or electroencephalography to then look at brainwave activities. There's new tech that's coming on that can do that. Um, but if you've done enough, as sleep research has done enough you know, uh, analysis to sort of pair up, this, these are movement patterns that take place during the sleep stage. You could, if you just have the movement patterns, you could say, well, this is probably happening. Now, it's harder to detect if somebody is napping during the day just by low periods of movement. So you have to make some decisions. You have to say, well, if there's absolutely no movement for 15 minutes in a row, then that might constitute a sleep period. And what they found, or a nap. What they found, at least in Jerry Siegel's work, is that napping didn't occur often. Um, and there were some differences across different times of the year. Uh, David Sampson has now followed up doing additional work looking at different communities, so, some of the Hadza as well. And he found that they do nap. So we have a, a bit of a disparity in what the research is telling us. But I think the point is, is that we know plenty of societies and cultures around the world do nap. And I think that instead of trying to define, is there a one natural pattern? I think that we find that multiple different patterns are probably natural and fall into the range of healthy, as long as you're getting, again, sleep, adequate sleep. And uh, you can sort of maintain a biphasic pattern and still be you know, and not be uh, without having major consequences to your health. So let's talk about the people who got sleep in two separate phases. Yeah. So bimodal sleep. Yeah. So um, a researcher by the name of Veach, he's at uh, Virginia Tech, made uh, a lot of noise a couple of years ago. Um, it got, it was published all over BBC, Today, USA Today, et cetera. Um, about his work where he was, he's a historian, but he was looking into historical texts and identifying that it was common for, in those texts, for the author to describe a period of first and second sleep, as he called it. So people would go to bed early, they'd have a, a wake period in the middle of the night. During that time, they would, you know, uh, sit around a fire, have sex, you know, work on things, and then they would fall back asleep for a second sleep period. The response to that was that we've not been sleeping naturally by sleeping in one consolidated chunk and that this is actually the right way to do it. I don't think that that's correct. I think, again, what you found is probably 
what, what that sort of what that sort of data tells you is that this is done previously. It doesn't tell you that a monophasic sleep period is actually abnormal. So yeah, that's you know. But the the important part here is that people that do have middle of the night arousals might. Uh, if they are experiencing that as insomnia, it might just be more of a natural rhythm. So if you go to bed early, then wake up for a few hours and go back to sleep, that can cause a lot of anxiety. And insomnia is really more of an anxiety disorder. And there's multiple different types. But if you worry about your sleep, that is the almost the surest way to then have your sleep be disrupted and be impaired. And so the good that can come from that is that if you realize, hey, I have this weird pattern that doesn't match what is commonly described, then you can still be okay. You just need to make sure that you're getting adequate sleep. I want to come back to insomnia and anxiety in a little bit, but I want to continue on this for a moment. Yeah. Um, so obviously, if there were people who got up during the agrarian period and mm. the night, they sat around a campfire, they didn't turn on lights that were very blue and very bright, right? So they weren't going to affect their circadian rhythm exogenously in that kind of way. They didn't turn on the TV that has fluctuating light and a lot of arousal stimulus. So the idea that someone might want to get up during the middle of the night and go back to sleep as opposed to lay there stressing out, awesome. What they do during that time matters. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, they probably want to do things that where they don't come into full hyperstimulation yeah. um, if, if that's avoidable. And yep. some people might have where they just have discrete fa- you know, phases of sleep at different points in the day. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's interesting because that work, as I saw it, was mostly not hunter-gather period. It was agrarian right. period, right? That's Which right. is already yeah. going to be different because you have to wake up at a certain time to deal with the livestock. And mm-hmm. so you have to, like, it was the beginning of changing evolutionary environment. Yeah. Um, so it indicates some previous things, but not necessarily evolutionary things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, previous, previous sort of anthropological patterns that we've been able to identify through historical texts. Um, now, is there enough time between some of those early texts to have some evolutionary adaptation? Possibly, but again, it's very—it's not a lot of time uh, in terms of evolutionary scope. But yes, it, it still does matter, and the tech, the amount, uh, the sophistication of the technology that we invent can can be a good thing, but it also has a chance of disrupting our patterns, our natural patterns, with more strength. And so, when you move from a hunter-gatherer existence into more of an agrarian, you know either even horticulturalists to domestication of animals and plants, industrialization, you know, you're going to have, if you have a candlelight and time pressure to get up and farm the fields versus wake up whenever and then go and hunter gather, that's one shift. It's a bigger shift when you have, you know, high definition, yeah, high definition television screens and, you know, work that's coming in at all times of the day. If you're an executive and you're dealing with, some time zone that's far away and you're taking a call at midnight just to be up with your team. That's common, but that's new. So for the most part, what we call recorded history has not been long enough to affect our evolutionary biology via natural selection all that much, maybe some epigenetics, but this together is interesting, right? This ancestral Mm. health is interesting. And I think one of the main things we find is there are some common patterns, but there's also a lot of differences because we're in a very adaptive species. And uh, Inuits probably had some different sleep dynamics than people in Polynesia because, um, duh, right? That's a fairly different adaptive environment. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about a couple other things from this. I, I actually don't know the research on this, but I have heard things about that obviously in an evolutionary environment, you didn't want to have everyone asleep at once. 
Yes. And so you had some people who were watching and that there might have been, there's a hypothesis that you end up having night owls and early birds that are actually genetically different because they were period. They were people who took night shift, who took different rotations. Mm. Uh, Can you talk on that? Yeah. The sentinel behavior. Um, So some of the early thoughts and hypotheses around this is that one of the reasons why teenagers have what's called delayed sleep phase syndrome, which means that they, it's very common if you have a teenager that you're yelling at them to go to bed, it's one o'clock and they're up on their phone and you're telling them, you know, go to bed, stop playing with whatever, you've got school in the morning. That, there's a, there's a reason why teenagers tend to stay up late is because that age group has, it's common for them to have what's considered delayed sleep phase syndrome, which means that they just don't get sleepy until later. The hypothesis has been that that was one of the first sort of adult responsibilities that a teenager had, that they would be up watching your tribe while the rest of the tribe slept. And what David Sampson's work has recently shown in his population is that there was very little time, in a, even in a small community of you know 20 to 50 people, that everybody would be asleep at the same time. So you had people that would wake up extra early. You'd have people that would stay up very late. And at any given time, there was always somebody awake. In fact, I think, I'm not going to remember the, the, the statistics exactly, but it was something like out of 200 days worth of data that they collected on sleep, that there was only 18 minutes where every, they, they could detect that everybody was asleep at the same time. Yeah, not, a, pretty, not a good idea. Yeah, exactly. You know, to watch out for the lion, watch out for the intruder, watch out for something that could harm the group. Makes complete sense. What was fascinating about it is even in this, this small group of people, that those behaviors were maintained. So um, of, of having, you know, somebody up at all times. So teenagers in that is one thing. Yeah. People who have a genetic predisposition holistically, do you, I mean, I, I have seen some mouse studies that showed nocturnal predispositions or early predispositions. I think it was the FBXL3 genes. And mm-hmm. there was some inter, in, interpretation that it would be relevant for humans is there some indication that circadian rhythm is actually genetic and not the same? That there are people that have predisposition towards altered circadian rhythms? Yes, there's been some good papers on this recently. We know this to be true. There are owls and larks are ten, is what we how we describe uh, these different types of uh, phenotypic expression of when you feel like being up, when you're most alert, when you perform at your best, and when you feel like sleeping. And so it's very, the nice thing about it is knowing in the future, as we become more aware about these genetic tendencies, then we can create work environments that enable people to uh, not have to try to fit everybody into one sort of square, that you get to sort of take part in your work, particularly with the freelance economy. You get to do your work when you feel best. You get to you have your groggy in the morning, you can take a lot of time to, you know, get up and get going. But then you might be working well into the night and that feels good to you. And if you maintain consistency with that pattern, that can be very healthy. What's not healthy is when we have uh, alterating, uh, alternating, rapidly alternating um, changes in our circadian timing. The body doesn't work as efficiently. And people who do that oftentimes can feel uh, very, I don't want to say dysfunctional, but far from optimal, sometimes dysfunctional. And so it's hard to remember, it's hard to think, you're not as alert, your body's not working as well, you can gain fat. Pretty much the system, the body systems are not working well. And so going back to this, yes, we do have tendencies and 
you know, again, hopefully in the future, we'll have really good clarity about what those tendencies are from a genetic perspective. And then you'll have a sort of societal structure that allows for people to, again, participate in a work culture, but not try to force everybody to, you know, hey, we've got a meeting at 7 a.m. Monday morning, be there. That can be really painful for people and it can ruin their productivity for the rest of the week. So this is an issue with the way we do statistics and science in a new area before we've learned how to do, say, phenotypic understanding. If we're putting everything on a bell curve and you have a predominant phenotype, then of course you're going to average to the predominant phenotype in a way that might be totally inappropriate. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on there's so much in the literature about the the timing of sleep is important, not just the regularity, but the hours of sleep one gets before midnight are uh, more meaningful. You have more HGH, et cetera, than after midnight. I would imagine that that is probably based on primary phenotypic expression and true for most people, but not true for everyone. But that degree of insight wasn't actually clear in the studies. And so then, of course, I think for most people, early to bed, early to rise, generally earlier to bed, earlier to rise is actually good, right? It's actually well aligned with evolutionary biology. Yeah. Well, people have a hard time with that and they actually feel better when they have a later schedule. Then it can be stressful for them to think they're getting shitty sleep. So yeah. can you say anything about, I, I'm sure this isn't right, but I have heard that there's a distribution that's you know, guessed at like 15% in the lark, 15% in the owl mm-hmm. and 7% in the center of the bell curve. Yeah. Does that seem like what you might expect? And how do you inform people to standardize to a best practice versus to what they notice works well for them? Yeah, 15 to 25% on both sides that have more extreme tendencies. And you're right, you cannot use population averages to prescriptively. So because this whole group of people's averaged eight hours of sleep or went to bed at this time and performed well, therefore you need that. It's a good starting place, but the individual is different than the, the the group average. And so, for example, if like just using sleep time as an example, if you were to say, yeah, this the average of this group was eight hours of sleep, that's what they needed. And I said, you should you should get this and this is what you actually need. Then I could be prescribing you too much sleep or I could be prescribing you not enough, right? If you If you tend to be one of those people that needs more, then I'm prescribing a sleep debt. And if you tend to be one of those people that needs less, you actually might, it might develop insomnia because then you're getting, you know, getting to bed, you're laying there, you're worrying about your sleep and it, it creates an, a, a situation that's right for, to, for produce insomnia. So take the best practices as a starting place, pay attention to what actually works for you and don't stress on if what works for you doesn't fit the best practice. That's perfect. Perfect okay. sense. Yeah. Can you talk to me about polyphasic sleep? Since we talked about the possibility of bimodal sleep where someone's yeah. sleeping in two different sleep chunks, what about more than two sleep chunks? Yeah, so this is some work that gained popularity a few years back. I don't hear much about it these days. I'm not surprised. It was originally devised by the military uh, as a strategy to um, help people perform better after multiple days of inadequate sleep. So let's say you're on a mission and there's not a good place to sleep. Uh, You're up for 100 hours. If you sleep in small increments along the way, if the opportunity allows, will you perform better at hour 95 to 100 than you would have if you didn't get 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there? The answer seems to be yes. That literature was then interpreted as, well, we only need, you can actually uh, sort of absolve yourself of needing to get eight hours of sleep or seven hours of sleep by sleeping in these 20 minute chunks. And there's, there was a lot of problems with that sort of analysis. One of them was that 
they were prioritizing certain sleep phases like REM sleep as most important and the only thing that was actually really necessary. What happens is when you don't get enough sleep, there is, you'll, you'll actually get deep sleep and REM sleep more robustly and sooner. But it's actually because the ex- expression of a buildup of pressure for those it means you're not getting enough, right? What you really want is to have sort of regular, you know, the, the, the really most important part about circadian timing is a regular period for you. Now, your period could be, could be later where you wake up late and go to bed late, but you want to try to maintain that pattern. Your body will work best if you are, if it's consistent in that, you know, that you're going to bed at three and you're waking up at, you know, let's say 10 or 11. If that's, if that's your pattern, great. Try to keep it consistent. If, if that's shifting though regularly, then that could be a problem. So the people that I would say that people that do have that pattern naturally are a bit disadvantaged because a lot of modern life, it's easy to stay up later, but it's, it's not always easy to not get up earlier. There are just things in life that make us have to get up earlier, particularly if you're not just a freelancer, but you work at a, a company that has meetings at you know nine, for instance. So um, yeah, so that is some of the vulnerabilities of that phenotype where it, you... And the, the result of it is that if you just have to get up early a couple nights a week, uh, excuse me, get up early a couple mornings a week, it might mean that you're really operating in what's identical to sleep depri- or jet lag and you're going to be you know, suboptimal. It might be adequate. You might be able to do a fine job for the task at hand, but you probably are unlikely to access your best, uh, you know, your, your best work. It's interesting. I know, um, you know, there's a whole group that got into polyphasic sleep, as you mentioned a few years ago. I know Tim Ferriss talked about it in uh, Four Hour Body, mm-hmm. um, and the military pioneered it for obvious reasons. But there were people that uh, pioneered it long before. Bucky Fuller uh, was famous mm-hmm. for kind of pioneering this on his own, and you know, a lot of inventors and artists like Tesla and Salvador Dali did these very strange sleep schedules because mm-hmm. one, they didn't have to interface with the world. Mm-hmm. And so then two, they found sometimes they would do long sleep and then very long wake periods because they wanted unbroken consciousness for a while. Yes. So they wanted to be able to fall asleep the moment they had any tiredness at all, do these shorter naps. Mm-hmm. And when they gave themselves permission to do their own thing, mm-hmm. they, and you can imagine that from an evolutionary environment, you want some people awake, a few people awake when the tribe is sleeping, but otherwise you actually want the tribe largely awake at the same time so they can do shit together. So there is yeah. a, coherence pressure beyond the individual optimization pressure. Mm-hmm. You can imagine if you remove someone from the coherence pressure and they just start finding their own individual optimization in relationship to their work, it might look like very different expressions. Yes. I think programmers today experience that. I know a few where you get into the zone and it takes a while to get to that place where you are really in a flow state and you don't want to disrupt it. You want to work in that flow state until you're, until you recognize your performance is no longer there. And that might not fit sort of standard sleep-wake patterns. Um, and I've known some people that have gotten into some trouble with that. If you have, here's the problem with maintaining altering sleep schedules. In a situation where you have full autonomy over your schedule and you can just, uh, you know, again, be up for a day and a half doing really incredible stuff, but then sleep for a while, that's good. Um, but now let's take another example of somebody who regularly gets naps at three in the afternoon or two in the afternoon. That is a period of a 24 hour period where we tend to have a circadian dip, which in our alertness drive. And so all of a sudden there's a mismatch between the amount of sleep pressure we've built up and how much that 
sleep pressure is being counteracted by our wake system. When that there's a dip there, that causes you to be a little sleepy. So it's hard, to, even if you're very sleepy during a day, it's hard to actually sleep unless you're in that zone. So most naps take place then. Most countries that have a siesta, that's when the siesta is. And there are reasons for that. But if you are in a culture where you're, you're, you're usually getting a nap during that time and your body entrains to that pattern, but today you actually have to drive from San Francisco to San Jose at that time, then you've trained your body to be really sleepy at that time. And that can be dangerous if you're driving. It could, if you're just having a meeting with somebody, you can you know, certainly not perform very well. So it can be a bit risky when you don't have full autonomy over your schedule. But that's again, where there's the art of you know, health promotion and health education. And then there's also the art of personal health practice, which is you making decisions in your own life about what's going to work. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes by trying to understand what the literature tells us as best as possible. And then also by then understanding, you know, the realities of your world and what's going to work. So there's no hard and fast rules, I'd say. I mean, there can be on some things, but a lot of what we're discussing are not. Um, but even then, I will oftentimes, if I'm a bit sleepy, I will avoid taking a nap and just try to go to bed earlier. Uh, that works for me because I want to try to maintain regularity of that schedule. But I also know that occasionally if I've just not been getting enough sleep, I will absolutely take a good long nap and that can help me really catch up where even, you know, more so than just what I could if I was just getting a full night's sleep. So little, you know, turning that back to specific conversation about naps. Um, and then you're, is there any more points about polyphasic sleep? Um, yeah, and the other, the other important point here is that you also have to look at what people say and juxtapose that against what was the sensibilities of, of the time. And so if people at the time, you know, it, sleep was considered something that was laziness, that was sort of anti-productive. Now we have an appreciation of sleep, and so the tide is completely turned, and you see companies like Google, et cetera, with sleep pods, and so now it's more celebrated. Sleeping is not laziness. Sleeping is, you know, self-preservation. It is taking good care of yourself. It's the equivalent of not, you know, eating a Twinkie. So when you hear people like Edison say, you know, I only got X amount of sleep per night, they were either one of the genetically few people that actually have no untoward side effects from getting very little sleep, which is possible, or they were lying and, or not representing what their actual sleep patterns were. And they um, and that is possibly too. That has absolutely happened. And it's hard to know at this point without being able to analyze some of these people who have claimed this, you right. know, what, what was actually going on there. So let's talk about people who have genetically less sleep need and then the polyphasic claims, because I think there's an interesting intersection. Mm. Um, there are people that need, just actually need less sleep, right? It's a small percentage of the population, something like 3% of the people that actually really wake up refresh continuously on six, six and a half hours sleep compared to seven, eight, nine hours sleep. Yeah. Even less than that. I I've seen some at the five, yeah. four or five. Yeah. I think there are a few genes that we've seen correlation with the DEC two genes and a few others with that one. And I think it's probably too early to know well, and I haven't done the research well, but my, my superficial understanding is that those genes correlated to specific processes regarding circadian rhythm regulation that the people who are sleeping six hours you know and less per night and being well refreshed actually had the same amount the same amount of time 
of delta and REM sleep and just less of the light phases of sleep. Mm. And so it basically regulated the ratio of time that people were in the deeper phases. That makes a lot of sense, right? Mm. That basically they're sleeping more efficiently because they are getting more potent phases for a longer percentage of the time then it would make sense that people start trying to optimize, right? Say, okay, I don't have those genes, but can I optimize for the percentage of time that I'm in the deeper phases? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So there's a compensation. So all of us might have a, if you were to be put into an environment that was fully permissive to you, for you getting what we'll call complete sleep, the exact amount of sleep that your body would want, there is a buffer that we all have to get a bit less and not have major side effects, particularly if you have consistency. So let's say you, just to make the numbers easy, you need eight hours of sleep and you're always going to bed at the same time, midnight and waking up at eight. You could probably do pretty well if you only were getting seven hours of time in bed, um, but you were maintaining a really consistent sleep phase, the timing, um, because, and you would see some efficiency. Um, it might not be optimal, but what you lose in terms of uh, you know, the benefits of more complete sleep to the hour that you gain, then it also, again, you might not really detect if there's a big difference there. Um, the, the thing about the people that get four to five hours of sleep without untoward side effects, you wonder, is it are they just getting very high sleep efficiency only and they're sort of gotten rid of the, the lighter stages? Or are they also getting more recovery from even less REM or sleep? The, the, the actual physiological processes behind the, you know, the, the expression of REM or non-REM is more efficient. And that's hard to detect. Um, is there, it's always interesting, though. I mean, we, we spend a third of our lives sleeping. And so the desire to gain more life by figuring out a way to get more time awake without consequence is I get it, I get it. It's sort of been in the same realm of extending maximal lifespan and aging. Would be a really nice to have, but there's nothing that has been discovered so far that has resolved the, our innate our innate need for getting the sleep that we need. But we can so. talk about the need for uh, less sleep from a genetic perspective, and I think that's a partial understanding. We can mm -hmm. also talk about inducible increased or decreased sleep needs, right? Yep. So and you talk about increased efficiency of repair. Mm -hmm. We could also talk about decreased damage happening during the day because of actually a more efficient physiology, right? So if we know that during sleep, the body is addressing inflammation, it's addressing oxidative stress and mm -hmm. radical damage. It's if someone had less oxidative damage happening while they were awake, if they had less inflammation, it's a reasonable line of thought to say they might actually need less total sleep because there's less repair to have happen. And so it's possible that the people who need less sleep might just have more efficient physiologies genetically. But I've, I mean, the claim has, I've seen the claim so many times and I'm just kind of curious, speculating here that somebody goes to Vipassana, they go to some meditation retreat where they're actually in a profoundly low amount of psychological stress mm -hmm. and maybe physiologic stress. And they're like, I don't feel like I need hardly any sleep. Um, I feel very well rested and maybe not enduringly, but for a period on very little sleep or when people are juice fasting and mm -hmm. or doing caloric restriction and you think, all right, well, how much work does it take to digest a lot of food? And is it possible that when you decrease the total amount, you are decreasing 
what the body has to process that it might actually have less sleep need. And the idea that if we decrease the psychological and physiologic stresses and increase the efficiency of process, that that might be part of the story. It also seems quite likely because we know that when people are ill, they need more sleep. Yep. Whether it's just a cold or whether it's an autoimmune disease because their body has a lot more to do to on the repair side. Yeah, so one of the, uh, you know, th- there's some truths there. And that's why we don't have a specific sleep number that is, uh, you know, infungible. Like it just, it's, or I, I get eight hours exactly every night. But our body is always processing stress, whether it's psychological or physiological. And sometimes we need more and less, even depending on where we are in that moment. But if you think about what we tend to think of very, very healthy people, so, you know, young athletes, uh, particularly like work with, you know, Stanford athletes, Sherry Ma did some work with them. And um, you see that those, those people don't need less sleep, they need more. Part of being healthy is enduring light stressors that like we see with cold exposure, heat exposure, even xenohormetic compounds from food. These are things that actually will upregulate your endogenous detoxification systems by eating them. We tend to think, oh, the vegetables are really good for us. They provide vitamins, minerals, but it's actually these other phytonutrients that cause a little bit of stress to the body, which then keeps it stronger. It's like getting a suntan, a little bit of exposure will stimulate the production of vitamin D, too much exposure will burn you. So being healthy is not avoiding stress, but it's actually getting the right amount of stress on a regular basis across a variety of different domains that your body then recovers from adequately. So people that are getting a lot of physical activity, they actually perform much better, uh, whether it's shooting accuracy, whether it's sprint speed, reaction time, whether it's their mood, when they're told to spend nine hours in bed versus getting, let's say, let's say eight. So they feel like, I'm getting to- a great amount of sleep and they're told to get more and they perform better. That's the, the trend of the data right now. I think the most obvious example there is bodybuilders, right? If someone's mm-hmm. in hypertrophy, there's just a huge amount of actual physiologic repair because they're yeah. beating the tissue up and there's a lot of anabolic process that has to happen. Yeah. And so nine or 10 hours sleep might be important. Whereas if they weren't bodybuilding, they might be fine on eight. Yeah. Um, and so then they have to decide to invest in it. Well, and this is interesting, defining what we mean by health, because it's not one thing, right? Mm. Ayurvedic medicine, coming from the yogic tradition, it said people shouldn't exercise beyond 60% of their peak capacity because they were not focused on athletics. They were focused mm. on longevity, and mm. they, were, they were looking at longevity in relationship to not having peak stress occur. And they definitely talked about decreased sleep need if mm. you write decreased stress dynamics. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think we probably don't know this topic mm. in enough detail, but the idea right now, people should all sleep more <laughs> for the most part and do everything they can to, to get enough good quality sleep. Yeah. The ability to have increased efficiency of that sleep through both technologic and other means that might decrease the total need without decreasing the amount of repair is certainly an interesting future sleep hacking topic. Yeah, and one caveat too to this whole conversation, particularly with the slow wave, uh, with the polyphasic sleep, people found that once they acclimated to that schedule, they could get a 20 minute nap and feel quite refreshed. And so by purging sort of the sleep pressure uh, metabolites that had built up, causing people to feel more sleep, causing people doing this to feel more sleepy, 
they could purge those pretty quickly. There's also an alteration in ion balance around neurons, which will then cause alertness as well. It's one of the reasons why naps are more restorative than you'd expect given the amount of sleep that someone gets into. It's not a lot of sleep, that, but it's quite refreshing where you have improved cognitive performance for six to 10 hours after the nap. Um, and so there's, yes, those things can happen, but are you, let's say you can manipulate one aspect of cognition or something that you're basing. How do I feel off of, right? Do I feel very sleepy right now? You also might not be giving your body enough time for full recovery of your kidneys or for purging of, you know, beta amyloid that's accumulating in, in, uh, in the brain. And so that's why we, in the future, as we develop more powerful interventions that can intervene in sleep and can potentially cause efficiency, we got to be vigilant to whether or not it's fully restoring the body in every way you want it to, or is it manipulating aspects uh, that you care about, but it's also putting you in a risky situation. That's a possibility too. It'll take time to figure all that out. So let's talk about things that damage sleep, that either increase the total amount of sleep need that someone has or create sleep issues or decrease sleep quality. Yeah. Um, Cause we know a lot of people that have to spend more time in bed or no matter how much time they spend in bed are still not refreshed because of mm -hmm. things going on in their physiology and psychology. Let's get into some of the primary sources and mechanisms that mediate that. Yeah. So there, like most things in our, in physiology, sleep itself is there's a u-shaped curve that describe um the amount of sleep we need that tends to associate with better health outcomes and so if you get less which we most commonly talk about then there are impairments to both mental performance and physiology but there's also impairments to physiology when you're getting more than you need and this is where the conversation gets a little bit confusing because on one hand you do have naturally long sleepers like you have naturally short sleepers and so just looking at sleep time, it's difficult to prescribe what's going on um, or to decipher what's going on just based off of sleep time itself. You have to know what the person's history was because the person might be sleeping longer because they have a chronic infection. The chronic infection is causing inflammatory markers that are promoting sleepiness and longer sleep. And that is a very different situation that somebody that naturally just sleeps longer, feels fully refreshed, and that's just their sleep. need. And there's a correlation causation thing here where all the articles that have said sleeping too long is bad for you feel irresponsible to me because the main reason that people are sleeping too wrong is something too long is something else that is already bad for them is happening. And the sleeping too long is a side effect, not the cause of the poor health issue. And so this, I don't, I've never seen anything that showed increased amount of sleep that wasn't related to some physiologic stress that increased sleep desire is a, pathological vector in and of itself. That seems like mistaking correlation and causation. That is such an important point to make. And I'll give you an analogy. Work in Alzheimer's space, you, you notice that the accumulation of amyloid beta, which is a protein aggregate that associates with the, progress, the, the onset and progression of Alzheimer's disease, work that looked to try to just get rid of amyloid actually made the situation worse. That the response of producing these protein aggregates and beta amyloid was a response by the body to protect itself. So yes, we do want to see a reduction in beta amyloid, um, but we want to, but we also don't want to sort of yes, exactly. We want to promote it, you know, the better clearance of it and a healthier system. We don't want to be removing something that is actually helping the situation further. 
even LDL. Yeah. LDL yep. has protective responses where artificially lowering it with statins can increase damage that's happening to the vascular system that LDL was actually a protective response to. Yeah, we see and this a lot in science, health science, yeah. So if we come back to sleep, when we say increased amount of sleep beyond, you know, people receiving 9, 10, 11 hours is bad for you, that really seems like nonsense to me. Mm. The thing is that if you have stuff that's bad for you going on, you're probably going to be sleeping more and we can see correlation. But we shouldn't be trying to tell these people, force yourself to sleep less when you're fucking exhausted. We should say, yeah. let's actually look at inflammation, chronic infection, stress, and what's going on for you. That's absolutely right. It is a great opportunity to say, to take a deeper look. You don't want it in there, right? So if, you, if somebody is now needing nine to 10 hours of sleep, where before, five, 10 years ago, they were getting eight hours, well, it's good to know that history, right? So now they're needing more than they used to. That's abnormal. Something's probably going on. But have you always slept that long? Uh, also, what age are you? Sometimes if, if you're younger, things can change you know, um, more unpredictably, depending if you're going through a growth spurt or if you're dealing with other sorts of stressors going on in your body. Uh, and so, yeah, we, you have to look at the time, the history of the person. And then what I would say is if, if you are getting nine to 10 hours of sleep per night and you are also waking up and you don't feel refreshed, that's really key as well. This is idiopathic hypersomnia, which means it's unexplained why this person remains sleepy despite the amount of the, the great amount of sleep that they're getting. And that is a miserable situation. It's treated very similarly to similar to how narcolepsy is treated with stimulants. Um, but with narcolepsy, they're missing a protein that is orchestrating arousal. And with idiopathic hypersomnia, yes, you give you give them stimulants, but uh, and that can help. But again, we don't exactly know what's going what's happening to generate that response. That's but it's what the word idiopathic means, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. So anytime we have a disease that we label idiopathic, it just means here's an effect that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, so deeper understanding is important. And here's where I actually think the functional medicine world understands a shit ton more than the traditional mm -hmm. approach in sleep sciences here. Mm -hmm. Because if we see someone who is used to sleep eight hours and was fine, now they're sleeping 10 hours and they're still tired. Um, obviously, we see that when someone has a flu. And we yep. also see it when someone has lupus. Mm -hmm. Okay. We also see it when they have other forms of rheumatism or things where like, of course, if the inflammatory load is high, we okay. might see that the quality of their deep sleep is going to be less from the inflammation, from the pain, and just the total amount of repair needed is more, fibromyalgia, yeah. those cases, or on the psychological side, depression, right? But mm -hmm. this, again, if someone is depressed, so they don't want to get out of bed, whether we think of the depression as physiologic rheumatism of the brain or whatever. Uh, which is kind of a popular set of new insights, or we think of it as just they have existential or relational issues where they don't want to get out of bed. The increased sleep need is not the cause of the problem. Being depressed is bad for you. Yeah. And, uh, and then the side effect is sleeping more, right? Or lupus is bad for you. The side effect is sleeping more. So then we want to break it down and say that's not one thing, that now you're sleeping 10 hours might be a thousand, any of a thousand different things. So now we want to go do good differential diagnosis to actually see, is it gut issues? Is it inflammatory markers? Is it bruxism? Is it nocturia? Is it, you know, like what's going on for them? Yeah. It's really, you know, it is, uh, particularly the immune system is difficult to um, sort of find out what's going on because there may not be a smoking gun. So there was an inflammatory situation that was occurring that was causing some sleep, but then, you know, it's difficult to, to then identify a blood marker. 
that is related to the experience, the, the behavioral experience that the person is having. But yeah, we, you're right. We, we definitely know that, you know, for example, micro, microbial products like bacterial endotoxins, a low dose of those we know when injected into somebody, they can actually increase non-REM sleep. Um, but a high dose will disturb sleep. So that is that sort of bimodal response of a little bit of inflammatory, in, inflammation can actually help you sleep more, but too much can actually disturb the sleep itself. So, so yeah. sleep more basically means exercise, right? Yeah, and, or, or, or being sick. Right. But then chronic sleep, meaning you've probably got pain signals happening. All, I mean, chronic inflammation. You've got yeah. pain signals all night long and or you have total physiologic stress and damage happening because tissues are actually being affected, right? Yeah. Acute thing. That's, now that becomes, this is a chronic versus acute scenario. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so you're right. Like going back to exercise, when you, I gave a presentation at Paleo FX a few years ago, and I was talking about the inflammatory response. This it was the presentation was all on why we get fat, and one of the things that I was discussing was the inflammatory response to weight training. And what you see is that there's the cytokine interleukin six is uh, triggered in response to break muscle breakdown, that then leads to an inflammatory it's, even though that is an inflammatory marker, it leads to the production of an anti-inflammatory marker that affects the brain and has a propitious effect on the functioning of our circuitry. Additionally, that same sort of thing can happen in promoting, in promoting sleep. And we talked a little bit about this last time, if I remember correctly, that let's say you, if getting a little bit of exercise or getting exercise can be very good for you, as long as that exercise is not a lot more than what you have been doing, right? So that is a moving target as well. If you're not exercising a lot, then you just need a little bit to then generate that positive effect on sleep. But you know, let's say you haven't, let's say you tend to work out, but you haven't worked out for a month. If you go back to doing the amount of workout, you know, the exercise that you did before that period off, that alone can be disruptive to your sleep, and it's just hard to know what's going to happen. But that's why we always want to sort of be uh, metering our own efforts to be healthy, like with exercise or sun exposure based off of our, you know, a, just a, a moment of pause to think how much I've been getting recently. A lot of people don't do that, but that ability to do that is actually a really important health behavior too. So I think this is a critical topic, which is understanding hormesis. Um, mm -hmm. to just clarify that everybody knows the word hormesis is in any adaptive system that has an ability to adapt to certain kinds of stresses, that it actually requires stressing that adaptive capacity to maintain it. And if you stress yeah. it more, the in the right ways, the adaptive capacity can increase. So if I lift a weight that's heavier than I can easily lift, the muscle will grow in response. If I'm exposed to a little bit more cold than I can normally process, my body will get used to more cold. If I go to way too much cold, then I just get frostbite or hypothermia. If I lift way too much weight, I just rip a tendon. And so, um, and if I hold a weight and don't ever put it down for a long time, I'm also going to get damaged, right? So the, the question is, how much stress of what kinds of stress for what duration and then how much rest and repair to actually upregulate the system as opposed to the kinds of stress that just damage the system. And I think it's both a factor of, as you mentioned, how much stress relative to the current capacity, which is yeah. like in yoga, you go to the point in the stretch where you feel a stretch. If you aren't there yet, you're not working, but if you push too hard, you just rip a hamstring, right? Yeah. Set yourself so, back there's a range that is actually hermetic. And then if you stay in that stretch for four hours, you're going to be damaged, right? Mm -hmm. you, you need to do the right amount of it. And then you need the right amount of chill and repair time. Yep. yep. And so 
if we're exposed to a pathogen, like just kids getting to play in dirt, being exposed to microbiome, it is actually hormetic for us producing antibodies. But if we're exposed to a pathogen that our body actually can't process, so like we don't want exposed to a little bit of HIV or hep C, right, or Ebola. And even if it's, say, exposed to a pathogen chronically, like mold in our house, uh, or dysbiosis in our gut, so we have a continuous exposure, or subclinical parasitic infection or bacterial infection, which is actually much more common than traditional medicine that only looked at acute infection and thought, this is obviously not hormetic because the body's not recovering, right? If someone's had a low-grade infection for 20 years, it doesn't mean that it stressed the system and it responded. It just means it overwhelmed the system and the system just resettled to having an infection. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really key thing for people to understand the difference of, is this a kind of stress I want to expose myself to in the right pulsed doses, or is this something I actually want to get rid of my exposure to? Yep. It, it's actually the the paradigm of athletics in relation to physical activity for health is, is a good one here because so much of what is endorsed and encouraged in our world for having merit in terms of like, you know, going out and being physically active, doing a Tough mutter, running a marathon, doing these extreme things that are, are notable and are big challenges, but are, are they what we need in order to be healthy? And I think the answer oftentimes is no. And in fact, those things can get in the way because one, they can create a large mental barrier for what you think you need in order to be healthy. And two, if we think, go back to those hunter gatherers, yeah, they were getting regular physical activity, but it wasn't extreme. It was regular and it was throughout the day. And they also had a lot of sedentary time in that day as well. And so we get great stimulus. We get great benefit from just a little bit of stimulus. And you know, if there is a desire to push that farther, there's also a long window where before that becomes problematic. But the problem is, is that we tend to hold as the sort of the apotheosis of what health looks like as these sort of extreme athletes, ultra endurance, they actually might really be pushing the boundaries of what is considered healthy. And there might be real consequence to that in terms of their longevity because of the amount of stress that they've now acclimated to be able to handle. So they can, they can tolerate running 100 miles in altitude but that doesn't necessarily mean they're healthier. It might actually mean that they've curtailed their, their individual lifespan. So to tie this back, my perspective about what we really need to be healthy is getting these, like you said, regular, I would say somewhat mild to moderate exposures that just keep our physiology working well. And with that perspective, then it's actually a lot easier to do it because you're looking for more of a balanced approach versus trying to have a silver bullet, just just exercise, but I don't care about my sleep or my you know, physical activity um, or my food, excuse me. Uh, but rather that we get a bit of benefit from all these different areas and that that's our opportunity to do a lot of things well, but each one of them is not that difficult. Right? Getting out and getting 10 to 20 minutes of sun exposure every day is doable. It's, a, it's got its own challenges, but we can do it. What you don't want to do is go and then say, well, I haven't gotten exposure to the sun for a month. I'm going to go sit out for four hours. That's an analogy. I that think is, very okay. a very simple example with athletics is I don't think anyone thinks that being a professional NFL athlete is really good for the quality of your life as an older person. Yeah. Um, and when you look at most competitive sports, even Olympics, right? Yeah. Most Gymnasts are going to have damage their joints in the process of doing what they're doing. Most ballet dancers are going to. And so you recognize that you're, op- you're taking a very generalist physiology 
yeah. and hyper specializing it. And that's yeah. going to, you're going to actually push past the zero sum capacity at a yeah. certain point, right? And start optimizing at the expense of other things. Yeah. But I want to talk about this, what kinds of stresses are good and what kinds aren't good because mm. people are starting to understand hormesis as there are, there is good stress. And this mm -hmm. is super important. Uh, Scott Carney was the guy who wrote Wim Hof's book, mm. uh, what doesn't kill us. And it was all about this. He was out here with mm. us visiting recently. Um, but I, and it was this idea, if it doesn't kill you, going to make you stronger. This is hormesis this is how the physiology works. Mm -hmm. Besides that it needs to not be too intense and besides that you need to rest in between, I really want to make the distinction between acute and chronic stressors and then bring it back to sleep for a minute and causes of difficult sleep. So chronic infection that is not coming from an acute I'm exercising, right? Or an acute exposure to some infection that is my body's going to clear, but I live in a house that has mold and I'm being exposed all the time. Mm. or I'm drinking from water bottles that have plastic xenoestrogens in them continuously, or I live in a world where just the VOCs in my paint are continuously creating toxins. And not only is this continuous rather than temporary exposure, it's also exposure to things that were not in our evolutionary environment. We don't even have evolved mechanisms to deal with. Well, yeah. I think environmental toxicity and chronic infection, as well as excessive sugar, as well as excessive psychological stress, as well as excessive blue light. There's a few of these that are just modern health hazards that are not hormetic at all. They're just chronic stresses that are damaging all of our hormetic mechanisms. And the goal would be to be exposed to as little mold as possible, to be exposed to as little environmental petrochemical toxicity as possible, to actively work on detoxing previous exposure. And I know there's a lot of thought about detox being bullshit because there are people who go about it in an unscientific way, but exposure to petrochemicals the body doesn't detox that well osmotic movement into tissues like that's a fairly straightforward thing that i think functional medicine has done a good job of understanding and i think that this is a lot of people's sleep issues there's a other than the psychological part which is also chronic stress yeah. rather than acute we're dealing with a bear thing yeah um i think chronic physiologic and psychologic stressors are like the foundation of almost all of the sleep issues and they might express as apnea or insomnia or bruxism, but they're actually all from the same underlying set of chronic stressors that we need to address. Yeah, some some evidence that supports this is uh, the loss of years off of total lifespan in societies where pollution is a really serious problem. And you see the loss of like 10 to 15 years of life. And you also see the development of obesity at much higher rates when you live in a heavily polluted environment with you know lots of chemicals circulating in the air. Why is that? Well, just like you said, it can disrupt your sleep, which itself has a, a, disrupt, a disrupting effect on your metabolism. It can disrupt your breathing, which can have a disruptive effect on your sleep, which can have a disruptive effect on your metabolism. It itself is inflammatory and inflammation can then disrupt healthy met, you know, metabolic processing and energy regulation, which can lead to obesity. And that's sort of a vicious you know, cycle right there. So whether or not it's happening in your environment, which is what's overhead in, in the sky above you or in your local environment, in your home, whether it's you know, a mold or some other toxic substance that you, it's hard to perceive, but you realize you're having an effect. It's an area that is worth looking into. Yeah. Um, and it's frustrating because it can oftentimes be hard to detect, but 
some people you're almost lucky if you if it's frank enough where you can detect it and solve it versus when it's constantly disturbing you but you don't it's not it's not obvious enough where you know where to look and how to solve it yeah so there's a whole group of people that have multiple chemical sensitivities where yeah. the smell of perfume the smell of gasoline the smell of you know really bother them and it didn't used to and yeah. The idea that they just had more total antigen than they could process. And so their systems are getting more sensitive because it's not processing them. It's not clearing them well. Yeah. Um, they've kind of pioneered this. The work with them has kind of pioneered this field of uh, uh, environmental medicine, looking mm-hmm. at environmental toxicity as a tier one source of some health issues. Yeah. I think the key thing is talking about subclinical stuff because yeah. – what we're used to thinking about in medicine is acute stuff, meaning acute toxicity, acute mercury poisoning is fairly straightforward. I get exposed to an industrial level of something and I'm vomiting instantly, right? Mm -hmm. We have to go do acute medical chelation therapy, whatever it is, Um, or acute mold exposure, which is like some degree of aspergillus that where I'm like in shock, Um, which is very different than a low level of something starting to create decreased system function, increased system burden where I might not start having obvious symptoms for years. Yeah. And it might be multiple different sources that are then overwhelming the system. And I'm getting a confluence from a certain amount of VOCs in the carpet and a certain amount of glyphosate on the food and a certain amount of mold in one of the environments that are all affecting the system's capacity to create antigens as fast as they're coming into the system. It's really scary because our world is continuously being populated with these potential, um, you know, intermediaries, intermediate in, in things that are affecting your health, but in a way that is going to lead to diabetes downstream. It's going to lead to advanced aging. It's going to lead to alterations in metabolism. It's going to cause brain fog and it's affecting you day by day. But like you said, it's subclinical. You don't have a diagnosis to work from. Um, but even then, you know, if you were diagnosed with diabetes as a result of these environmental exposures, you'd be given something that is just trying to address the diabetes itself and not the cause. So it's it's difficult. We think about Wi-Fi, we think about toxins and environment, you know, in things that are in our environment. Um, and I think the fact of the matter is there are signals um, that a lot of stuff does matter. And yet there's also, you know, there's, there's hypotheses that we don't know if it's going to actually affect us or not. So, you know, what, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious to ask you, Daniel, because you've thought a lot about this. What is your strategy in this world where a lot of these things are, you know, how, how do you address it when you're not sure what the problem is? Yeah, so this is... For resources for people who are interested here, and this is obviously affects sleep, but affects lots of other things. We're going beyond just the scope of sleep here. When we're looking at what are the chronic, subclinical, subacute um, stresses that are non-hormetic stresses mm-hmm. on physiology that can lead to decreased homeodynamic capacity of the system and chronic illness. When we look at autoimmune disease. There's not a clear cause. When we look at neurodegenerative disease, when we look at most cancers, there's not a clear cause, which is why we don't have good solutions for them. So we say they're idiopathic. And it's because they don't have one cause. They have multiple causes, usually. 
Mm-hmm. And each of the causes have multiple steps in the transform. Before the autoimmune antibodies express, inflammatory cytokines were increased. Before the cytokines were there, there might have been changes in subtler signaling molecules, opioids, or, you know, and before that, the actual infection or the toxicity or the structural issue that created the chronic inflammation or whatever it was came into yeah. play. So if we have multiple steps of causal cascade and we have multiple different streams coming in together and then we end up having clusters of symptoms based on tissues or, or processes that are affected and we call that cluster rheumatoid arthritis or insomnia or Alzheimer's, does, does everyone with Alzheimer's have beta amyloid? No. Does everyone with beta amyloid have Alzheimer's? No. Does everyone with Alzheimer's have ApoE4? No, right? These are statistical correlations of something that's actually more complex. So how we think about complexity medicine here is we have to understand what are all the factors that can come together into a specific expression and knowing that those same factors can come together with other dynamics into different expressions. And how do we understand those? And I think this is what naturopathic medicine, integrative medicine, and the best current is functional medicine. you know, are really trying to do progressively better. And uh, so with regard to, say, the environmental causes, um, I think if people want resources, studying the building biology movement is good for understanding what makes the actual buildings that you live and work in healthy for people or not healthy. And this Mm -hmm. is things like, you know, you've smelled that new carpet smell that's kind of funky or paints or glues or whatever. Well, that kind of funky smell, if you're living in it and sleeping in it, isn't just funky. It's those, the formaldehyde, the other volatile organic compounds are either neurotoxins, carcinogens, or endocrine disruptors, right? Mm -hmm. And we'll look at the breast milk of mothers and see 100 or 200 petrochemicals in non-trivial amounts. It's like, that's that's a big deal. Yeah. And so the building biology movement, I think, is very valuable for thinking about our local environment. For thinking about the larger environment, there are some places that are just not the best places for people to live. Hmm. Um, if you are living and working in an industrial and more polluted areas, this is just going to be suboptimal. Yeah. Um, and if you can modulate some parts of it, which is if we're spraying chemicals on food that are designed to kill insects, that are the most robust fucking creatures that can make it through nuclear holocausts. And we're putting that on our food and then we're eating it, right? Mm. And whether it's an herbicide like glyphosate or, or pesticides, fungicides, those, have, those are not things we want to spray on our food, right? Mm. Those are pretty real effects. Now, can we get organic food and progressively better, you know, permacultured food and like that? Totally. Does that decrease a source of toxic exposure? Definitely. Mm-hmm. And we decrease the obvious things like don't eat aspartame and artificial colors and trans fats. Definitely. Yeah. Um, can we look at a lot of the medicines that we use that are sources of pretty acute toxicity? Can we look at the fact that water in a lot of cities, municipal water has so much pharmaceutical in it because people are peeing out that many pharmaceuticals. Like these are, these are fairly serious things. So I would say building biology is one good source. I would say mold by itself is a big enough issue because the way we do modern building and because we started using fungicides and paints that made mutated forms of molds that were more pathogenic and because it seems like molds actually respond to certain signals of wireless that are common and increase mycotoxins, studying mold and how to assess your environment for molds is a pretty big thing. Uh, mm. like 
I, the percentage of houses that I see that have some non-obvious mold that is actually pathological is enough that I think everybody should look into it. Mm. Uh, I think Dave Asprey's movie was a good introduction. The mm. moldy movie, I think going to like Dr. Schumacher's website, mold avoiders, uh, mold survivors, and other people who are kind of pioneers, Dr. Ray um, in environmental medicine is good. And then actually finding, if you're interested and you think you've got chemical sensitivity or whatever, actually studying environmental medicine a little bit and maybe finding a doctor, a functional medicine doctor who can do testing. Science is not perfect yet. Yeah. Um, when we're looking, you know, we can look at metabolomics to look at metabolic byproducts that indicate what's happening to the, cell, to the cells and try and infer toxicity. We can look for toxins directly via a number of different assay methods and in different fluids and in different tissues. The field is advancing, but I would say the very best of where functional medicine is, is meaningfully further ahead than where traditional medicine is in this case. But the best of where functional medicine is, is very different than the best of where woo medicine is. And it's important to make the distinction. You've got like one camp that calls itself evidence-based medicine, mm -hmm. but it still is pretty much, these are the pharmaceuticals that work on double blind placebo-controlled, large, multi-location, randomized crossover trials. But work means, yes, the statin lowers low-density lipoprotein. That's true. It might also, though, cause hepatotoxicity and neurotoxicity and whatever else. And it's not actually addressing why you have high LDL and now you can't ever get off it because your ability to regulate cholesterol yourself is bad. We call that evidence-based medicine. I would say that that whole field is just so bad at understanding complex systems mm. that it's like, if you have acute illness, go there. Otherwise, it's really all it does is acute illness. Yeah. Then you've got people who will pay lip service to whole systems but don't understand it well, and they'll just mm -hmm. pretty much muscle test you um, mm -hmm. or kind of intuit what you should do and recommend naturally sounding things, mm -hmm. which is probably not going to do very well or cut it either. Then you've got people who are actually trying to do science well but, uh, but the appropriate complex system science, mostly not paid for by pharmaceutical interests. Yeah. And it's not good yet, but it's yeah. getting better. And I would say the Institute for Functional Medicine is probably leading the way. Mm -hmm. And groups like the Systems Biology Institute, which are led by the very best biologists in the world, you know, who, who developed genome sequencing, who are looking at putting omics together, are really contributing to that with exponential medicine and other, other lines coming in. So. If, if uh, people want to get good resources to learn more, I would say look at scientific-based medicine, but complex system science, because your physiology is complex system, not just we looked at all the stuff that had clinical trials, did meta-analysis, and these things affected some metric. Yeah. Um, and you know, finding a doctor at IFM is probably a good start. Doing more research along those lines is a good start. Yeah. Here's, here's what I have to offer to this. So for an individual trying to make good decisions in the world to be healthy, if you have something going on that you don't know the cause of, or you don't, but you still are trying to be healthy and not find yourself in an undesirable situation later, think of heuristics that can guide you through life. So, because they're very powerful. Um, there's something called commander's intent, which you don't want to hand a military operation a 87-page you know, field guide and say, all right, do this, right? You want them to study that and understand it, but then if you give them you know, win hearts and minds, 
It is an idea that will then guide in the diversity of real life. So I think here, one heuristic that I live by is just trying to live as naturally as possible. Drink out of glass, get some sun exposure. Um, you know, again, try to remove plastics as much as I can without being obsessive about it because there is a type of personality that can worry about this stuff so much that they develop health issues in response to worrying about these perceived health, uh, you know, uh, limiters. And so we also know as a more optimistic perspective about our world is that there are, there's always been things that can challenge our health in minor to final ways. We also know now that in the United States, health span or lifespan is longer than it's ever been. We're li living close to 80 years on average. This is not all with full health, but we're living longer than we ever have. And, um, and so that's a good thing. And sometimes we can forget that. And I agree with you about functional medicine and modern medicine. I think modern evidence-based medicine is very good for dealing with acute issues. You have an infection that is serious and you have a, you've broken a bone um, or you're, you know, something, something on that order. What I like about functional medicine is, attack. yeah. What I'm, what I like about functional medicine is that they are more apt to test. It's not, well, we can't offer you this diagnostic because that doesn't fit into our sort of cost payment structure, but rather let's look at four, let's look at your blood work. Let's look at your microbiome. Let's look at a bunch of different things and let's do the best that we can with the information that we have today. And the problem with that is that you're right. The best of functional medicine are light years ahead of what sort of care and service you can get elsewhere. But within that community, you also might have people that are less skilled, the level of quality, like any discipline that's big, there's, there's a big quality difference. Um, and then again, at the same time, while we do want excellent healthcare providers, we also need to remember that we have, nobody will have more influence over your health across a lifespan than you will by the decisions you make, the knowledge that you know, how you implement that into your life. And that is really critical to your health as well. Not outsourcing this core competency. This is a big part of what I do with human OS, as you know, Daniel. It's we we all need better expertise, and it, this should be fundamental to the educational process of humans growing up, understanding how to take care of ourselves and our environments that affect our health, so that we can have a better even interaction with our healthcare provider, so that we can use technology that can help us, so that we can use guidance that our healthcare provider gives us to fine tune the direction that we take our lives, how we live day by day. So you're saying a couple of things that are so important. I just want to kind of reiterate them. One of our core memes at Neurohacker is empowered responsibility, which mm -hmm. requires getting out of the defer to an authority com complex. And like with regard to your own money, yes, you can have an accountant. Yes, you can have someone that does financial planning help with you. But ultimately, like if you lose your money or not, you're f they don't care that much. You really do. If you don't understand it well enough, you're just disempowered. Right. Yeah. Well, what matters even more than that is your health. And if you find 10 different doctors that all disagree on what you should do, mm. if you don't understand it well enough to make an informed decision, they're not going to be ill or die if you do the wrong thing or healthy. Like, so there's a place for you to say, Oh, this is my body. Like yeah. I need to understand this well enough that I can really take responsibility to even find what kind of doctor to know if to ask the right questions, to know if I think they're good at or not. 
And of course you can use them as tools, but you have to use them as tools where you take responsibility. And you sure as shit cannot expect to do a medical intervention and not address the foundational causes of health and wellness and have it really work. And so empowered responsibility is that you have to learn more and it's also that you have to apply it. Or you have to just be okay with suboptimal life. Yeah. And so there's a, you know, like, like on one end of the bell curve of medicine is really understanding the causes of complex illness. And we get into now here, the deep systems, biology, functional medicine of how much is what kinds of toxins, what kind of infections within what genetics, within what microbiomics, within what brain scan patterns, you know, the yeah. other side of what we're looking at is the shit that is just true for everyone that accounts for mm-hmm. 80% of it. Totally. Right? If we haven't done this first, if we've done this and we're still dealing with complex stuff, then we need to start tuning, right? But you do such a good job of helping people get that like, you can do so much to live longer, healthier, happier, that is just about actually applying the foundational critical stuff that has just been hard for us to apply. Yeah. This is, are we sleeping enough and well? Yeah. Are we getting enough in the right forms of movement? And are we eating well, we're getting enough water, not eating too much sugar, not eating shit and not eating like too much heavy stuff right before bed or more calories than we can burn foundations before we even get into raw food, vegan versus paleo. Fuck it. Right. Are you eating donuts versus mm-hmm. like food at all? Yes. Um, yeah. That difference is pretty profound. It, 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 yeah, it really, it really is. And I, I think that the idea of, human optimization should not be considered an action, but an identity, right? It's not something that you do to optimize once, but it's a mind frame or a perspective that you have that is constantly learning, um, constantly trying to think about, you know, sort of trying the new thing that is maybe a little less tested, but curious um, versus, you know, sacrificing that opportunity cost to do something that you actually know is really good for you. And so it's this ongoing engagement that those who can develop that relationship with their own health of always learning, always trying, always engaging, reminding what, you know, remembering what those sort of priorities are by thinking about what you are, um, how do you design your environment as best you can to remove these toxic substances that could interfere with your health, whether you know that they are now or not. Can you get on top of it before an issue happens? Um, can you then, how do you then stay engaged? There's also people that will sort of feel like, yeah, I know these things, therefore sort of I got it versus, well, what has your pattern actually been over the last two years? And a good example is when I started to do, work on dance plan, very early version, I was commonly speaking about sleep. And I would talk about how I was getting eight hours of sleep per night. And when I started to measure my sleep, I realized I was getting like six hours and 45 minutes per night. I I measured three months and I thought, wow, I'm getting less sleep than I claim that I am. But it's not that I was lying to the people that I was speaking to when I said that I got eight. I really thought that I was. That sort of awareness then enabled me to course correct. And I started to actually attend to my sleep a little bit differently and spend more time in bed. And I felt better as a result of it. But that is something that is a good lesson for me to have, you know, experienced. But the lesson is sort of ongoing, right? You can always be learning by your recent patterns. What's that? Yeah. Ring on. Yeah, exactly. Even as a sleep expert, right? Even as someone who did doctoral research in the space. Yep. 
you're still learning what's helping your sleep and helping your heart rate variability every day. Yeah. It is very difficult to constantly perceive all the different factors that matter in our health all the time and to have sort of engagement with, you know, different tools that can keep you mindful, that keep you engaged, that keep you performing well towards your goals is, you know, and that's where we see with the quantified self movement. It's one of the great values, but I think that even the quantified self movement is limited in that feedback and triggering of behaviors and setting goals is valuable. But a lot of that falls flat without sort of the self-actualization of this, you know, self-empowerment and knowledge behind it. Like you're not going to incur friction in your life if you don't get its value. Right. But if you empower these devices, these helpful tools, which are ex increasing in their power to intervene, if you understand them better and you empower them with value, they're more likely to be helpful. So, a big sort of heuristic that we base, you know, our activities off of at Human OS is how can we help humans benefit from the world's best information today on health and from its best tools and technology that help us in make that a part of our life? So, it's not out there in the ether, but it's actually a part of what we do and it's benefiting us. So, so, yeah. So last time we talked about quite a few things that people can do that are foundational to improve their sleep. Yes. That getting exercise in the day is pretty important. That getting the right light in the day is pretty important. That not eating heavy meals before bed is important, right? Mm. That we talk about a number of those things. Yeah. But now there is the, those, these are difficult to actually apply. Um, it takes some practice. Yeah. Typically, if people try to apply all of them at once and they get to fail at all of them at once after a week. Yeah. Uh, you so so you're good at helping people learn how to take that knowledge into action. So I want people to go to Human OS and check out the resources for how to take quantified self data and take what you know and take goals and put it together. But just briefly here regarding sleep. Yes. Um, whether someone decides that the first step that they should take is exercise or working with their sleep environment or their blue light or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, say as some general important evidence-based practices on how they can actually implement any of those things successfully enduringly yeah so the work looking at how, whether or not quantification and self-tracking um if it's helpful is is varied but generally since i follow the space closely we tend to see that these sort, this sorts of behavior of tracking can can have a favorable effect on on uh, long term outcomes, which are at least long term by the definition of what that study looked at. So you see people walk more. You can see people get more regular sleep, or at least in terms of their sleep timing. Um, and then, yeah. So those are we 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 already have indications that engaging with these types of health behaviors, which I'll call using a tracker. Um, can actually lead to the behaviors that then get you the results, right? You, when you, let's say you walk 10,000 steps a day and that defines your, your lifestyle for a year, then that leads to the results that you, that you want, right? So whether it's cognition or avoidance of disease or maintaining leanness or maintaining your current weight, whatever that is. So now specifically, when you think about getting good sleep, what, it, what is it that you're actually trying to do? Well, you want to get um, adequate time to get the sleep that you need. So you need a plan to get to be in bed for enough time for you to get all that sleep that you want. That takes a period of under, understanding yourself. And what I try to do is aim for complete sleep, which I tend to get about seven to seven and a half hours of sleep per night. 
but I try to be in bed seven and a half to eight hours per night so that if I, it tends to be one of those nights where I sleep longer then I've enabled my body to get that sleep. Um, I also try to go to bed pretty consistently around the same time. And that's hard knowing even what I do, it's still, you know, you're oftentimes making a decision about doing something else that's fun and missing out in that um, versus cutting it off and saying, hey, well, there'll be more time for that tomorrow. And that, that is the reality of the challenge once you believe sleep's important and want to, you know, attend to your own sleep goals. What can you do during the day? As you said, getting regular physical activity. So I created something called Intune Training. It's in for integrative and opportunistic movement uh, or training. And the problem that it's solving is even people who are act active regularly, um, it's sort of, sort of periodic, right? They might be you know, going to the gym a couple times a week. I try to make every day have some physical activity in it. So Intune Training gives a list of body weight oriented activities that change every single day. And you actually just can sort of write down your repetitions, if you will, as you do them across the day. So let's, for example, if today one of the exercises is to do 50 push-ups, you don't have to do them all at once. You do a little bit here, a little bit there. But the result of that is you've actually reduced the friction to say yes to starting doing a little bit of activity right now. And the result of that is that it's easy to have every day have some physical activity in it, even if I don't finish that workout of the day. For me, that's part of not only my physical activity practice, but it's a critical part to my sleep practice because I do sleep better when I'm getting regular physical activity in my life. And we know that the research absolutely supports that. My friend, Matt Buman, who is a co-author in one of the papers that I've published, has done work specifically in that area. What is the influence of physical activity on sleep itself? And what is the influence of getting good sleep on your desire or likelihood that you will get physical activity the next day? So there is absolutely this sort of virtuous cycle here where the better you sleep, the more likely you feel like getting physical activity and eating well. And then the more likely you're eating well, and or the more that you're eating well and getting physical activity, the better your sleep quality will be. So yeah, we look at these things in isolation, but we have to then pan out and say, okay, they're all affecting the other. Um, yeah, so we, we can talk a little bit about specifics of food on sleep quality too, if you'd like. So you either get a vicious cycle where you are feeling shitty, so then you want a quick hit more, which is going to look like some sugar or some caffeine or whatever, which is going to give you a quick hit, but then actually drop you and then you feel shittier. And then you, you know, so you can vicious cycle between psychological imbalance, physiologic imbalance and poor behavioral dynamics, mm -hmm. or there's a virtuous cycle where you actually start getting positive feedback on the actual lift of baseline rather than on spikes that then crash. And so you start exercising and then exercise makes you want to fall asleep. And then because you feel well rested the next day, you actually have the energy to exercise. And yeah. because you're actually feeling better, you're not craving sugar as much. And then you're feeling more better. And now you're getting positive feedback on weight loss, muscle tone, increased capacity. So we yeah. obviously want to drive that. And one of the things you're saying is that this exercise help with sleep is profound enough. The behavioral hack that you gave is lower the barrier of entry to exercise so we don't procrastinate it. Because yep. if I've got to do an hour of training and I've got to drive to the gym and et cetera, then I can put it off. Yeah. But if it's just do fucking five push-ups, there's a good chance that I might do 10 while I'm down there. Yep. And even if all I did was five or 10 push-ups, I will still sleep better and do better than if I did none because I made it too big a deal. Yeah. I, I actually feel that in-tune training is a skill that people should add to their health practice. It doesn't mean that you can't do other forms of exercise that you, that you love, that, you're, that are your hobbies, that feel like 
the right way for you to sort of express physicality in your world, right? That's very different for different people. But what Intune does is it actually takes a lot of mental pressure off of having to make that work in your life. Now, you can get into good routines where you're very consistent with it. But what inspired me to create this was two Stanford wrestlers that I know um, had independently one week apart from each other told me sort of confiding in me like, gosh, I haven't made it to the gym in a month. I've, I've been so busy with work. Now, me telling them, oh, no, exercise is really important and you should do it. I mean, that might remind them of what they already know, but it's not that they aren't doing it because they don't believe in its value. They're not doing it because their perception of what is valuable is spending an hour and a half to two hours in the gym and killing their body because that's how they were trained as athletes. Athletes actually have a common problem with this when you have to change your mindset from the performance enhancement mindset to the physical activity for feeling great every day, performing well mentally and living long and feeling good. That's a different sort of a mindset. That's what I operate in now. And so whether or not, you know, you don't have to think, well, I'm doing Intune or, or I have to choose. I, I do Intune or I don't do this. Rather for me, I like, I like to go to, you know, spinning classes and cycle. So cycling is really fun for me. But I don't stress about if I'm going to miss it or not because, um, because I'm busy, because I have something I can do here and now. And so I think that this is actually a really critical skill because as simple as we all know that physical activity is good for, you know, for, for us, and yet still I think the patterns that we maintain of sort of feast and famine or doing too much or having this perception of what is needed doesn't totally match the literature. So I have every day, I take all the opportunities, large and small, to use my body and be physically active. And that is very liberating. Yeah. So um, learning about Intune training, is that at HumanOS? Yeah, so HumanOS will have, uh, has, has Intune training. It's over 100 different workouts. They're all approximately the same work volume. They're not, it, each workout is not that much, but I do them, I try to, I think about doing them every single day. And then there are days that I miss and I don't do any reps at all. But my goal is to do at least one rep of one of the exercises every day. The way that I designed it is that it's balanced across upper body, lower body, posterior chain, core cardio. And then I gave a value for every rep or every second of every exercise. And then you get feedback about whether or not the volume of work that you've actually done is relative to the Department of Health and Human Services weekly exercise recommendations. So I keep my exercise volume at or above 100 to 150%. And I know that I'm getting good, adequate volume of physical activity to help me things like, you know, to feel, just to keep my body healthy, if not necessarily advancing my performance. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I know that a big meme right now that I think is great is movement rather than exercise and specifically movement as a way of living for humans as a base state rather than something that you do now and again. Yes. And so that we just think about, again, from an evolutionary or agrarian perspective, people should, mm -hmm. people were moving most of the time. Yeah. Not sedentary that much. And so to just like think about it, can I be moving more? Can I take this meeting on a walk? Yeah. Take this phone call on a walk. Can I, you know, whatever it is. Totally. Um, I think makes a, a meaningful difference to the mindset of sedentary is a given and exercise is a thing. Yeah. Deconvenience your life, park farther away, take the bus. Like, you know, people that live in cities like New York can be healthy because they walk a lot. Transport, you know, having a car is inconvenient. And so, Places where you see, like in the Netherlands, where people are 
bike riding a lot, or places where you see a lot of walking, that tends to correspond with markers of population health, whether it's lower BMI or other measurements that are some angle into how healthy you are. And so you can construct this on your own and you will have to because you're the ones that is then sitting in the, the, the you know, the pilot seat of your life. If you have an, if you work in an environment that is not permissive to doing physical activity throughout the day because of the type of clothing you have to wear or how socially awkward it might be, you can do a little bit of, you know, work before, you know, a little bit of physical activity before uh, work, some perhaps in work or at lunch and some after. But that's very important. Take all the different opportunities, squat down, stay in the quad position, hang from things, do push-ups. You use the body that you have. And the more that you use it, it's actually energized, the more you actually want to. So it's a whole different mindset. And then you see opportunities. You're walking down the street. You see opportunities to play. Play, play with, you know, the body that you have and, and the environment that you're in. And, uh, you know, I know this is a sleep talk, but this is very relevant to getting good sleep. So as a closing thought, I think one of the most important things you said is uh, attention to the balance between how one does things that actually matter to their physiology without adding psychological stress. Hmm. Kind of like any time there is an understanding of what is better, that means there's an understanding of what is worse, which means that there is some feeling good about what is better, which means there's feelings <laughs> bad about what is worse, and then there's the possibility of a vicious cycle on that, right? Yeah. This is the way that any kind of ideal creates a shadow, creates mm. a vicious cycle into the shadow loop. Yeah. And so uh, whether this is what is good for us to do spiritually, mentally, emotionally, for my work, for my family, it's very easy to get into a negative loop on the, the negative. Yeah. It's very important to learn how not to do that, right? Yeah. So is it true that eating sugar is bad for me? Yes. Is it true that stressing about eating sugar is bad for me independently of the sugar? Yes. Are there people who just say, fuck it, I don't care about what I eat. I'm just going to not stress. And now they're healthier because they're not stressed. Yes. But is the food still affecting their body? Yes. So it's very easy to have an either or that says, fuck it, I'm not going to worry about this because I don't want the worry. But physics is still physics. Or I'm going to pay attention to the physics. But then whenever I don't think I'm getting enough sleep or water is handed to me out of a plastic bottle, I'm stressing myself out. And so there has to be a, how do I do the best that I can with the physics of it, the biology of it, and do that from a really neutral place that doesn't Mm. spin on negatives. Yeah. It's such an important point. Um, And orthorexia, which is an unhealthy obsession with being healthy, is a real thing. And that doesn't necessarily, you know, so I try to identify if you have Clivity towards you know stressing out about being healthy or or not doing something that you think is healthy. Failure is a part of being healthy. You're going to not do the thing you want to do so many times. It's how you respond to that, and it's also you know is your pattern your overall pattern defined by the fact that you didn't do it, or did you just miss a couple of days, or you just missed a couple of days regularly? But still, your overall pattern has a sensible, healthy dynamic to it. That is that helps you kind of go easy on missing a, a, a you know a, not getting a good night's sleep and not beating yourself up, eating something that tastes great but you know it's not good for you and not feeling bad about yourself, not exercising for a couple of days in a row or getting physical the, the amount of physical activity that you want and feeling awful. Um, the the nice thing is once you have a good healthy relationship with your body, you 
and you also have a good perspective about how to, you know, construct your health pattern day by day, you know, it, it's also sort of self-regulating. If you, if you're like, ah, oh, I don't feel that great. I didn't get enough sleep because I stayed up later. I didn't get exercise. I'm like, oh, I don't feel that good. I'm going to go out for a walk. I'm going to go do something that I know will immediately put me back in a better frame of mind. And so go gently, keep educating, know what matters. Think about the determinants of good health according to these different domains, sleep, exercise, food. Um, it's not, there, are, there is a simple layer, but in order to sort of do the right things in that simple layer for a lot of people, you have to go sort of beyond that and you have to know the details and connect the dots. So that's why this conversation is valuable because we're, I bet everybody who started to listen to this today, even if you didn't know much about sleep, still believe that it is important for our health. So it's not like as we're coming to you, trying to convince you of something, believing that you don't already think that, but it's rather seeing those connections creates a more uh, sort of valuable dimension in your mind about its, you know, its place in your life. And whether or not you remember all the details is not important, but it can add a motivational source for you to continue to engage with sleep as something that matters to your performance and your health long-term. You know, just on the psychology element of it, because um, I think it's so important and it's not, I mean, health is just one expression, right? But mm. um, almost everywhere, somebody sets January 1st goals, health mm. are usually part of them, but there's a bunch of other ones then they fail at it and then they beat themselves up for it. And then the beating themselves up makes them feel bad. So they want to do whatever addictive thing makes them feel better in a hurry. And they just flail out of it. And then they, after they've done that enough times, they stop wanting to try because they've imprinted hopelessness. Yeah. Um, how does one effectively work towards things is a very deep topic. And the best training I ever got on it was actually in meditation training. Cause it was mm. a very simple thing. And in meditation training, someone is, given an instruction, right? They're going to focus on their breath. They focus on a mantra. They focus on a sensation, whatever it happens to be. Mm. And it's fucking hard to hold your focus there. And so your mind wanders. Mm. And the instruction is generally, as soon as you notice that your mind wandered, bring it back to the focus mm. on the breath or the mantra or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is after someone's mind has wandered a bunch of times, then they don't come back to the breath when they notice it. They go, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why does my mind, am I ever going to get this meditation thing? Maybe this meditation thing isn't right. Maybe I'm a fuck up. Maybe I'm, which is still their mind wandering. It's actually still not being focused on their breath or the mantra, but in a just particularly destructive way. Mm. But it's almost as if they're trying to do this behavioral psych or motivational psych on themselves. They're just, so it's kind of like someone fell and then instead Mm. of getting back up, they just start flailing on the ground, beating their arms on the ground. Mm. And it's like, no, 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 just get back up. And so, in meditation, it's so clear, no matter how many times your mind goes somewhere else, analyzing why is never the thing to do. Mm. You just come back to the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Once you've done that enough, you start being good at being able to hold it. It's just a new training. Yeah. But any beating yourself up or wondering why is just another not doing what is here to do. So the moment you notice I haven't exercised all week, all it is is, oh, I'm going to do five push-ups right now. Not like mm-hmm. beat myself up about it or make a big plan of how I'll start exercising forever. Just like, can I just come back to whatever okay. my intention was right now? And now I'm back on track. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much, so much value to get from a meditation practice. It's so simple and that it has such transferability to the value that you receive there to other things that you're working for in life. But, you know, humans have the inimitable ability to use executive functioning in our minds, which is the ability to forecast the future, to set goals, which are temporarily remote, which means in the future to strategize about how to arrive at those goals. What's our best strategy to get there? To course correct once we 
advance towards those goals, get new information, and realize that maybe there's a better path to, to go there. Those abilities are fairly unique to humans. Um, at least no other species on Earth has the robust capacity that we do do that. And as a result, we can you know, aim for health outcomes that we want. I want to feel really young when I'm 80 years old. I want to perform like I'm 40 to 50. I want to lose weight. I want to, whatever it might be, solve this health challenge to have this performance benefit. They tend to sort of, you know, your source of motivation can be grouped into different things. I either want to get, like I want to sort of optimize who I am or I'm solving a health challenge or I'm doing this good thing for someone else in my family that I care about. There's all these different sort of motivations that can make us focus on this. Out of all the other things that we can focus on, we focus on this part of self-betterment. And with that, you need to then, I think, think about what is the right sort of tribe that you are seeking information from? Who are you getting your information from? What are your goals and your process to get there? But the path of this, I call it personal health mastery, takes a lifetime. It's sort of like the, you know, uh, ancient figures where you, you know, you, you work on something for a lifetime and you just continue to sort of achieve new levels that sometimes take 10 years for you to get from one level to the next after you've gotten far enough. They become harder to attain. But there is few things that I think, if anything, that is better to attend to and to, you know, to invest in than yourself because of that it is going to affect all of your experiences that you have, you know, in that moment and, and going forward. And so the investment that you make today in learning these things by listening to this podcast are not just going to pay off now, tomorrow, or the next day, but possibly, very possibly for the rest of your time. And so that's why I think the investment in this area, whatever it is related to health, find good information, find the right tools, continue to learn, and you know, stay engaged, stay engaged. Dan, thank you. Unfortunately, we're out of time for today and there's other things would be fun to talk about, but we really covered the things that I was hoping we would. Mm. And if, uh, if people have a lot of questions in any specific area that we didn't address, maybe we'll come back to them at some great. point. But uh, yeah. these two, I think was a really great intro to sleep foundations. And thank you for making the time to come do this with us. I was happy to, to join you, Daniel, and I'll come back anytime if, uh, if there are questions. Thank you, my friend. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. 
Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.